Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie. Use a smartphone podcast app, uh, iTunes, of course, or turn us on on Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Joining me as always is Editor-in-Chief of Tech Central, Niall Kitson. And I suppose uh, I was about to say, normally we would start off by saying we're, we're mourning the loss of another key piece of software but this is Windows Vista so do we really care? Uh, well did you even have a computer running Windows Vista because I know you were an XP guy for a long time and then eventually you made the jump to Windows 7 so did you ever have anything running on XP? Never I never heard a single thing about uh, Windows Vista that would make me want to uh, upgrade or jump across or whatever and that's why I stuck with XP for so long uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a very unpopular operating system. It was bloated. It was intrusive. Um, there was there was too many ways to do simple things. So I think mm. when I, I was looking at the stats today from um, Net Market Share uh, to see how popular is Windows Vista still, how many laggards are still out there. So um, just to give you a sense of where the market is at the moment, Windows Seven is still the most uh, widely used operating system in the world at the moment. So forty eight point four one percent of computers of PCs on planet Earth are still running Windows Seven, even though officially. It, uh, it ended uh, support on the 13th of January 2015. So we're kind of in this sort of uh, foggy period before the extended support ends, which is the 14th of January 2020. So, you know, I think most Windows 7 machines will have died a natural death by then anyway. Um, Windows 10 for all the free updates and all that sort of, you know, we're going to make it as easy as possible to, to get the software. Um, 25.19% market share. I would regard that as, as underperforming, really. I would have I would have hoped them to at least have broken 40% by now or put some real pressure on Windows 7. Uh, not the case. Uh, Windows XP, your favorite OS for a long, long, long time. Uh, 8.45% still, even though, you know, long gone off the market uh, at this stage, but still still being used. Windows 8.1, 6.87%. So there's more people using XP than using Windows 8.1, uh, which I think explains an awful lot about the lack of success of of um, sort of a, a, of 8.1 as a, any kind of a bridge. Or maybe it's a lot of people have uh, that were on 8.1 right. just upgraded to Windows so, 10. So all of these very popular uh, operating systems, Windows 10, Windows 7, Windows 8 was kind of okay. Windows Vista, which was uh, loathed by everybody on the planet. Uh, what kind of share does that have at the moment? Yeah, 0.78%. <laughs> it says everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. <laughs> so that so the story today is anyway that uh, Windows Vista, the this, this support is going to end. It's officially dead as of when? Uh, the 11th of April. So you've got four weeks of, you know, enjoying Windows Vista to any extent before you're, you're cut loose by pretty much everyone. You know, uh, it it had a I I don't want to say a good innings. I mean it was it was unloved pretty much from the start. 
kind of it kind of went downhill from there. I, I think you were even being kind when you say it was unloved. <laughs> But it, it, it is interesting, though, to see, uh, because you were saying that you thought the take-up on Windows 10 would be a lot uh, higher, and it's not, uh, and a lot of people are still went using Windows 7. I think the reason that those numbers aren't quite what you are uh, expecting is because a lot of people are moving away from computers and laptops, and they're moving uh, onto tablets and using their, their phones more and more, and they're just not upgrading the computer that they have because they don't use it as much. Yeah, that's certainly an argument that's going around at the moment. I mean, if you if you have somebody that's a very light user of a PC, like um, I, I don't want to sort of um, stereotype here, but if you if you were buying a first device for an older person, would you get them a PC or would you get them an iPad? Oh, I'm immediately thinking of my dad, and yeah, an iPad is is what you would do because they would be a light user. Once they don't have to type on it, you just get an iPad. If they just want to surf the web or look at YouTube or whatever, you know, tablets are perfect for that. Yeah, like if and you in want fact, people- actually, hang on, you suckered me in there, you dirty, nasty, disgusting man. Oh. Would you get them an iPad? No, I'd get them a Samsung tab. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, I nearly fell for it. <laughs> I'd, I'd, no, I'd, but seriously, I would. I'd get them a tablet or I would get them one of the, uh, uh, one of the bigger screen smartphones or something like that because that's, that's all they need. I wouldn't buy them a laptop. They don't need, if you're not typing, you don't need a laptop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's get to the stage where, like, all the basic things that people want to do, keep up with their folks, share, you know, do WhatsApp, do email, that kind of mm. thing. Tablet will do it just as well as anything. Um, the PC really now is a, sort of a gaming and productivity device. You know, it's it's carving its own um, niche, or rather, maybe mm. the, the tablet has taken so so much space away from the PC market. Mm. But I mean, the PC market in general is not good. I mean, it's it's still going through a, a serious decline at the moment, and it, it will take a breakthrough technology like um, high end virtual reality to to really resuscitate it. So, like, if you're buying a PC now. The, the interesting parts of the market are, are at the high end. You know, the, the gamer towers are doing really well. Mm. Uh, the, the ultra portables are doing quite well in the business space. So, but, you know, the casual device, you know, the, you know, here's something basic, go, go learn something that that's gone. And at the tiny end of the market where you want kids to be getting into computing, that's where the Raspberry Pi is. That's where the Galileo board is. You know, so you've got these tiny little entry level devices and then the really cool, interesting devices at the other end. And that sort of middle ground, maybe, you know, the 500 euro laptop, if you will, that's really getting squeezed. Now, how's this for a sequence from one story into another? You were talking about the Raspberry Pi and we're teaching uh, kids how to actually use computers and to code so that they can grow up then and work for the government as a uh, official computer hacker. Uh, and we're finding out that the Yahoo hack uh, from a little, it was early, late last year, wasn't it, where like half a billion accounts were uh, were taken in what they described at the time as a state-sponsored attack. Uh, we've now found out which state it was. Well, I mean, con- confirming what people suspected all along, really. And it's there are so many components to this story, some of which we're going to find out, some of which we're, we're not, that it really makes you sit back and go, you know what? These companies do not give a hoot about the security of their own user databases. They can say all they want. They do not care. And the sooner the general data protection regulation comes in, the better. And I'll explain why now. So... Uh, the latest uh, development in the Yahoo hack story, um, four people have been uh, charged, four Russian nationals have been charged. Um, two agents of the S- uh, the FSB, which, as we know, is the, the sort of the successor to the KGB. Uh, one, Dmitry Dokucheyev, which I'm sure I've pronounced incorrectly, and Igor Sushkin. So those are two FSB agents uh, on the lam. Well, on the lam. They're probably back in Russia and beyond the reach of the law. Um 
two hackers, uh, Alexei Balan, who already has um, two warrants out for his arrest in, in the States. Of course, he's not in the country. And Karim Baratov, uh, who was arrested in Canada. So out of the four persons of interest, we actually have one arrest out of it. So we've got two FSB agents, two hackers for hire, and um, one very, very lazy uh, internet giant with a very, very large database that was compromised not ne- not because of their tremendous systems, much as I've been, you know, ragging on them for uh, not treating uh, user uh, safety um, with uh, the appropriate level of gravitas, but by a simple spear phishing attack. I, I was about to say, I, I think you're being a little bit unfair by kind of, you know, the, uh, saying that Yahoo and these companies don't uh, secure their user data because they do. And we've seen these cases with Microsoft and they keep all their data in the EU and they won't let the American authorities add it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, I was going to say these four Russian guys, how did they break into Yahoo? Were they there in the middle of the night with their cans of Coke and their joints and their cigarettes and whatever, you know, trying to uh, hack in and discover passwords and all that kind of stuff? No, they didn't. Tell us how they got in. No. uh, Now, the FBI are being very cagey on the exact method by which Mm -hmm. this happened. But it looks like um, sort of a mid-ranking employee in Yahoo, not somebody at the C-suite, not somebody at basic customer support. So somebody with reasonable access to to the company's back end was targeted with a spear phishing attack. So they they either did something as silly as clicking on a link in an email or downloading an attachment or something like that. And just by virtue of exposing their account that way, it let the hackers in and they were able to get access to um, pretty much whatever that, that individual was used to using, which as we now know is the user database and an account management tool. So the hackers were able to get in and, you know, in terms of the user database, they were able to pull out usernames and um under the user account management tool, they were able to change the password. So they would find out dustyroads at yahoo.com and they would go, okay, I have forgot my password. And, you know, they would be able to, or rather they would just change your passwords on the, on the server side. Mm. Um, so they, hence they were able to get into uh, people's uh, emails accounts. They were also able to forge cookies so they could surf the internet disguised, if you will, as, as certain okay. users. And uh, it looks like this started in 2014. The breach itself was only um, disclosed two years later. So there is a possible window of two years where hackers were actually roaming around Yahoo, gathering information, gathering intelligence on persons of interest to the Russian government, okay. or in the cases of, of you know hackers looking for people who actually did some daft things mm. like putting in their credit card numbers or gift card reference numbers, this kind of thing. But th- th- that's um, all That's all small fry because the big thing that we've been hearing since November is that the uh, the re- American election last year was won by the Russians. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Who influence. happen to have in possession half a billion email addresses of American citizens. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we don't, you know, the, the big hack that was um, uh, attributed to Russia on that was um, John Podesta. And it mm. was the dumping of his emails in particular. It wasn't. It wasn't the mass dumping of thousands, thousands of accounts. But that's that's what I was going to ask. With with access to these half a billion uh, uh, details with Yahoo, what did the Russians do with those details? Well, it was it was literally just the dumping of the uh, the user database. Now, some of the passwords mm. that were dumped with it, I mean, they they were encrypted, so they were looking for specific people of interest. So apparently, mm-hmm. they targeted what ended up being six and a half thousand people. Now, these would be people with ties to the Russian government, to the U.S. Mm. government, 
to um, say companies operating in Russia. Um, so a lot of it was, was sort of um, journalists as well, actually. A lot of it was politically motivated. Yes. Yeah. And um, it seemed that there was this sort of side gig the hackers had where they could go off and, and seeing as they had access to the mm. entire user database, they could, they could go and look for um, goodies. Okay, yeah. All right, well, listen, one of the things that I learned at a, a little uh, radio broadcaster school was that you have to have the interest of balance in any radio broadcast, and I feel we're talking about the Russians a lot. So uh, they're not the only state-sponsored uh, hackers in the world, are, are they? No, I mean, goodness knows we've talked about many, 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 many contenders uh, over the past few years. Um, however, who's, who's, who's been at it this week? Who else has been at it this week? Okay, um, if you follow Amnesty International or Forbes magazine uh, on Twitter, you might have noticed some very strange um, tweets coming up on their accounts uh, involving, you know, uh, sort of down with Holland, uh, Nazi Germany equals Nazi Holland, swastikas, this sort of thing appearing at random uh, through um, these very high profile Twitter accounts. And it looks like that, um, well, it looks like, I mean, you know, pro-Turkish hackers got in to um, got access of these people's or these organizations' Twitter accounts and started posting uh, propaganda. This all goes right the way back to um, a referendum that's happening in Turkey at the moment that would give President Erdogan sweeping new powers. And his government ministers have been um, campaigning uh, the Turkish community abroad uh, mm. because they, they, get to, they get to vote. Um, and uh, one such, um, how would you say, uh, mission was made to Holland and um, the Dutch government said, actually, no, we're not going to allow you to campaign. So the, the, this has been the source of much ire between um, the Turkish and the Dutch government. And this has been kind of the fallout from it. Now, what's interesting is that it wasn't a case of Amnesty and Forbes, etc., having their accounts hacked individually. People didn't go, oh, right, we're going after Forbes because, you know, Forbes in Holland, of course. Uh, what they did was they went after this company called Twitter Counter, who are a third party that would manage, um, uh, well, manage, they would, they would use sort of analytics for um, uh, these, the, these would be clients of this company. They, mm. they handle Twitter analytics, mm. uh, but they also have access to these Twitter accounts. So Twitter Counter, which is the company at the centre of this, was compromised uh, and these accounts were, were targeted um, through that breach. Now, unfortunately, this is the second attack in four months that Twitter Counter have suffered. So this is really embarrassing as far as they're concerned. Um, thankfully, Twitter was was on the ball and revoked access um, to Twitter Counter fairly quickly. So, you know, people's timelines weren't absolutely bombarded with uh, spammy tweets slagging off the Dutch government or anything like that. Um, so it, w- it was caught fairly quickly, but very, very embarrassing. And, uh, you know, from a user perspective, once you allow access to these third parties, there's really not a lot you can do on your end to protect yourself because the usual advice comes out, you know, enable two-factor authentication. Um, Twitter counter came out themselves and said, use 10 character passwords with a mix of letters, numbers, characters. Um, have a look at which apps you, you actually have connected up to your Twitter account at the moment. Are they being updated? Are they huh. dormant? Um, always make sure that the ones that you're using have current security measures in place. Um, and of course, if you see something funny going on with your account, contact the service provider straight away. But when you hand over access to your account um, to a third party, there's an awful lot of trust involved there. You know, these companies are based on trust. 
that they will be able to deliver a service uh, accurately and securely. So this is really bad. And not only that is that you think they're a big company so that they should be trustworthy, but you just never know because Yahoo get hacked, Google get hacked, uh, Microsoft get hacked. So you just have to be very, very careful about who you choose if you're going to allow access to any of your social media accounts uh, because you just never know what will happen. It's interesting to see out there in the world that you've got these massive brands like, you know, Windows and Twitter and Yahoo, and they are being attacked by Governments. It's like, you know, that, that's talking about big boys. That's, that's big, big boys. Anyway, that's, that's, that's what's happening in the news today. Uh, we've run out of time for now. We did want to give a mention to, uh, one particular website because in the tech industry, we've got a lot of people who are coming out of, in and out of Ireland, uh, for work with all the, the tech centers that we have here. Uh, and of course, one of the worst things when you're moving to another country is trying to find somewhere to live. So some of our friends have come up with a new, uh, website. Tell us about that very quickly. Yeah, just a very quick shout out to a new website and app called propertybasecamp.ie. It's kind of aimed at businesses at the moment. And the idea is if you're hiring people in, you want to cut down on that sort of four week period where people are still finding their feet and uh, finding somewhere to live. So propertybasecamp.ie. Have a look. No, thanks for keeping us up to date with what's happening in the news today. Let's get on with our interview for this week. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. The game sector has a long history in Ireland through multinationals like Bethsida, Activision and of course Havoc. Uh, There is also a thriving indie community that you might not be so aware of. Uh, Immersh, the Irish Game Makers Association, has a membership spanning all sectors from middleware and the studios all the way down to uh, card game developers. And I'm joined by indie dev and Immersh board member Jen Carey to tell me a little bit about the state of play in Ireland and her own fantastic project. Hi, Jen. Hi. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Immersh and the impetus behind it. So, as you said, Imrit is the Irish Game Makers Association, and we represent all game makers in Ireland, regardless of what kind of games they make and what section of games they're working in. And Imrit is really there to promote game makers and just to help everyone make the best games that they can. And when you're looking at the people that are making games, I mean, it's almost games that are capital G at the moment. It's so all-encompassing. So are we looking at people that have travelled through, you know, the Commodore 64s, the 8-bits, going all the way through to consoles and landing sort of at the high end? Or are people taking a much more uh, inclusive idea of what games can be and where they can be played? Well, we're seeing a lot of people across the entire spectrum. We have some people who have been gaming since they were children. They had the N64s, they had the Commodores, and now they're making big AAA games in their uh, own time. And then we have developers in the middle range who are doing something halfway between experimental and halfway between uh, commercial games. And we have completely experimental games of people who just want to push what a game is and see what they can do. And when it comes to sort of um, picking a medium for a game to live in, as I sort of alluded to, you, you imagine that it's a straight line going from you know, the 8-bit all the way up to 4K and AAA gaming now. But it kind of the fun with gaming now is kind of where you find it, really, and that extends all the way back to the, back to the desktop and cardboard games now. Or does it? I mean, is it, is it a case of, you know, pe- people do settle at the top? Or are people looking backwards and going, you know, I really enjoyed certain card games when I was growing up. Maybe that's the sort of thing I want to look at again. There's definitely um, developers here who are working on card games and are working on things that are even 
like retro inspired games they would be 8 bit and the art style would be very much like the classic games there's also developers who are working on amazing like 3D landscapes and just <laughs> games with really really modern graphics and controllers we have people working on uh, PS4 and making games for mobile and making card games and board games so we really have a little bit of everything it depends on the developer themselves and on what they think this game needs as to what it's made on and we're looking at the types of games people are playing to look at the mechanics I suppose uh, which I guess have their own kind of attraction when you're looking at a, a card game naturally they're going to come with their own set of rules or norms or systems uh, as opposed to uh, I don't want to keep coming back to the consoles but it is the kind of the opposite end of the spectrum when you're looking at middleware and this kind of thing when people are coming to new games are they taking inspiration from the high end and replicating it or are people taking things that they learned from Dungeons and Dragons or even the likes of you know Netrunner now and going this is the sort of base that we want to work with. I think a lot of people, when they're approaching games, there are so many different systems that are already set up that people like to... They'll take their favorite system and modify it to the way that they want it to work. There's definitely some things like your draw deck and uh, a way of playing cards that are established and that's the way that everybody recognizes them. So it's kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that happens with a lot of things. That being said, um, there can be like a certain fun in changing up these rules and seeing how people respond to them. So it's really up to the game developer themselves. There's, there are conventions and a lot of the time people like to stick with them just to make things easier and layer stuff on top of it but there's some great games that just change those conventions and see how people work with them and having talked a bit, a bit about systems there's one thing that you can't get away from when talking about games in, more and more uh, as they become more sophisticated is the role of story um, as, as somebody that you know comes up with the systems works with the middleware in another life but also sees the value of story how do you find the two kind of intertwining is it possible to have a compelling system without a story for example um definitely i find that your mechanics and your story should always go hand in hand at least for me for my perfect games your mechanics should tell a story and your story should work into your mechanics that being said you can have mechanics without a story and you can have stories without a mechanic but if you don't have the mechanic you don't really have a game and if you don't have a story then you tend to have you know even asteroids and stuff did have a story but you have a lot more of the basic simpler games that we know from years ago whereas people expect games these days to have a story involved in all their mechanics and how they're playing it and do you think this role of story has brought games to the stage where people approached them kind of with a cinematic eye almost i mean i know with heavenly sword it popped up on netflix not too long ago just by putting together the cutscenes to let, to let it sort of tell the story from beginning to end. Is this the kind of experience people are expecting uh, with games now? I think there's definitely a level of cinematicness to games now, especially in the bigger games that have cutscenes. Though one of the big problems that some of the larger games have encountered is using cutscenes instead of telling story within their game because you have to remember that the game is all about interactivity and if you're removing the interactivity then you're just basically showing a film and people aren't there for a film 
but there's definitely parts that there's a huge overlap especially with the graphics and the ways that even movies are made these days there's so many special effects and there's so many things that you can do that there's a big crossover between what's happening in movies and what's happening in games and to get so to your own project Rampunctious uh, which is on Kickstarter at the moment uh, it's a card game it's a party game so tell us a little bit how it works Okay, so Rampunctious is the game of terrible puns. It's for four or more players, and whoever can make the best, most, or worst puns wins. Uh, Each round there's a pundit who takes a scenario card, and these all have random fictitious scenarios like raising a penguin army. And they choose a topic card from their hand, and the topics are all pretty normal things like dogs and cats or pop culture like Jennifer Lawrence. And the pundit will play one of their topics with the scenario. So say they played dogs with Raising Penguin Army. Then everyone else has to try and make puns about dogs while talking about raising their penguin army. And then whoever makes the best ones wins. No, simple. uh, Kind of in the best spirit of things. Sounds simple, not so much in the execution. Yeah, it's definitely one of those games that everyone starts off in a little bit of a panic and then after one round, when everybody realizes that we want you to laugh and we want you to laugh at each other, then everyone kind of like settles in and it's good fun. And when you're testing an idea like this, um, because it's going to Kickstarter, you're expecting people to actually invest in the idea to to have it become a, a real product. How do you beta test an idea like that? Well, to start off, I got lots of card sleeves and just like cut up sheets of paper and put down the topics, the scenarios, got a group of friends together and then just handed them out and started playing and seeing how people reacted and then just slowly tweaking it from there, uh, tweaking how the gameplay worked, tweaking how people interacted with each other and then also the content on the cards. And then taking it forward to uh, Kickstarter, I mean, was, was that sort of a fairly intimidating prospect because you actually have to put up a product that at least looks professional um, and then do a little bit of a charm offensive to go with it? Oh, definitely. Um, it was really intimidating doing it. I do have a lot of friends who've done Kickstarters before and a lot of people who are willing to help, which was absolutely amazing. But there's so much work that goes into even getting to the Kickstarter section. We had prototypes made up that were of a professional quality that looked very close to what the finished game is going to look like just so we'd be able to show exactly how it would um, play and exactly how people would see the real game and getting to that level like working with artists and working with um, printers and all this stuff and that's even before we start making the game fully there's definitely a lot of work involved and managing sort of the the Kickstarter experience as a campaign um, we were talking earlier about the Kickstarter slump. So uh, how does the, that experience go? Is there that initial rush of energy and then you find yourself going, it's 20 days to go and we've gotten like two euro? So I hear. Uh, we only launched four days ago. So uh, we're just about to start the slump now. And I hear it's going to be a lot of sitting around and fingers crossed and hoping we get to the end of it. But we've got off to a really good start. When you first uh, launch, you get you know all your friends in, your family, and everybody gets the initial interest who's been following you before. And then after that, it slowly dies down. And you're hoping for new people on Kickstarter and people throughout the internet to find out about the project and just come and look at it. And uh, how far along are you at the moment in percentage terms? We are 64% funded which is uh, really good for the for where we are right now. And plenty of time to go still. Oh yeah, 20-something days to go, so hopefully we'll be okay. 
And that was Niall Kitson talking to game developer Jen Carey. Niall, still with us. Uh, Niall, just before we go this week, what is our one more thing, the one story on the website we just couldn't squeeze into the podcast? Yeah, well, Google has been working on... uh wearable tech again seeing as google glass went down so well for the last time they're they're stepping back into wearables with a smart jacket oh read all about that at techcentral.ie as well as all the latest tech news with early updates daily newsletters and more for you as well as our weekly tech radio show here online and broadcast every friday at 6 p.m on dab digital radio with rte radio one extra until next weekend from myself dusty Rhodes, and from niall at tech central hq thanks for listening take care Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.